welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you happen to be visiting with us over this uh, holiday, uh, the summer period, glad you're here. If you're a regular and you're back from holidays, glad you're back. Um, I have the daunting task of following on from our speakers of our summer series, um, who have just done a fantastic job. And um, yeah, I think it's worth... Um, The quality of speaking and the material that they have brought to us was just stunning. So um, the bar has been lifted and I'm feeling a bit nervous as we start this new series, a series that I've called One God, One Story, One People. And um, I've been thinking about this one for quite some time. The series really has developed out of a deep concern that I've felt in terms of the way I see people approaching the scriptures, not just Christian people, um, you know, in the pews, in terms of their Bible reading, but, but even in the pulpits, um, as I've traveled around and as I listen, I, I just have this growing, deep concern about the way that we're approaching the Bible. And I guess the word that I would use to describe what I see is piecemeal. Um, if, if you look up the dictionary, if you look up the word piecemeal, it means obviously in pieces or in fragments, a fragmentary or unsystematic, unsystematic manner. And uh, it strikes me as I've watched that the scriptures, if they are engaged in at all, are often reduced to a ragtag mix of stories, a kind of miscellaneous collection of texts and proverbs and maxims and commands and prophetic utterances, but there doesn't seem to be any connecting thread that runs through them. Um, Actually, I had a man from Malawi come and see me. He was part of the congregation here at Gateway. He was studying at the university, and his name was Willie. Willie came and saw me one day, and he said, I've had the opportunity since I've been in New Zealand to travel, Pastor Don, and he said, I have a deep concern for the church in New Zealand. And I said, what does it relate to, Willie? And he said, it relates to the lack of the Word of God being taught. And I said, oh, okay. He said, look, Don, everywhere I go, people are stringing together motivational talks, improvement, self-improvement talks, throwing in an occasional scripture on which this whole thing hangs. But to be honest, he said, I find much to my surprise, because I expected to come to a nation like New Zealand, which actually has a reputation for Bible teaching. And he said, I don't find the Bible being taught at all. And and, uh, I guess... That's been also my experience. There doesn't seem to be any larger framework within which all of these miscellaneous texts, scriptures, promises, proverbs seem to sit. If, if, if there is Bible preaching at all, and it's becoming less and less the case, it's a verse here, a text there, often without any sense of an overall context. There doesn't seem to be any sense in terms of where these things sit and fit together. And 
I think people reading the Bible tend to treat it as a holy promise box, going to it hoping that they might get some kind of wisdom for the issues that they're facing, almost like a holy horoscope kind of approach. What we don't see when we go to the Bible is a coherent story from start to finish within which all of these miscellaneous bits find their place and find their context. And what I want to do with you over this series is explore this idea that the Bible is a coherent story. And I'll tell you, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm doing this series with... Uh, with some trepidation. I actually said to Karen the other day, this series has the potential to be more, um, uh, to create more controversy, particularly as I get toward the end of it, than almost anything that I have done in the years that I can think of having been here at Gateway. So I'll leave that with you. We'll, we'll see whether that turns out to be a prophetic utterance or whether um, hopefully it's just a, a, a fear in my own heart. But I do so with some trepidation. And the reason that I do is I think some of the things that I'll say as we start looking at this coherent story of one God, one story, one people, I think it will challenge some of our cherished notions and beliefs. So how do you know that? Well, I tell you I know that because as I've grappled with this story and this stuff over these last years, it has deeply challenged some of mine. Right, having said, said that, I, I want to begin by actually talking about story for a start. And today is very, very much of an introduction to this whole series. We won't actually get to the material. I just want to talk about the power and the purpose of stories in general before we come to this particular story, the Bible story in, in, in particular. Storytelling is ubiquitous. It's Wherever you go in the world, you'll find stories told. There is no culture that doesn't have its significant stories. And these cultural stories are profoundly intertwined in what we understand to be a culture's worldview, the way they, the way they see life. I've, I've spoken about worldview before. Um, Maybe to remind you, in case you've forgotten, or perhaps if you're not familiar with the term, worldview is the basic stuff of human experience. It's like, it's like lenses through which we look and interpret the events that we see happening round about us. Our worldview helps us understand life as it's happening to us. A worldview is essentially a big story. Um, a master, or if you like, a meta-narrative that allows people to make sense of what's happening round about them. A culture's worldview stories help explain for the people of that culture the basic questions that every single human being asks. Who am I and what am I doing here? What, what, what human life in the world should actually look like? What's gone wrong with the world as I experience? How can what's gone wrong be fixed? Where am I heading? What time is it now? Those are basic questions that every thinking individual grapples with. And in order to understand them, we create stories 
which, which intertwine with our view of the world. Nobody can function in the world without some working answers to those questions. Now, obviously, different cultures come up with different worldviews and therefore different stories to give their people to answer these profound questions. But stories are intimately related to worldview. They articulate worldview. They can legitimate worldview, support worldview. Sometimes they can modify and challenge worldview. And at times, if the stories are powerful enough, they can even subvert a worldview. We've over the last few Sunday mornings been looking at the stories that Jesus told called parables. Those parables were designed by Jesus to challenge the prevalent and prevailing worldview of the religious people, particularly of his culture. The ultimate aim was to subvert them, to overturn them, to actually let these people know that the stories that they were believing were wrong and they were leading them in the wrong place. We can't make sense of things that happen to us without attaching a storyline to them. Alistair McIntyre, in his book, After Virtue, asks us to imagine that we're standing at a bus stop and a young man that we didn't recognize, we don't recognize, comes up to us and says, sort of whispering in our ear, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus. Histrionicus. Now, even though we understand that sentence, that man's actions make no sense at all. What, what does he mean? And the only way you can make sense of what has just taken place is to try and learn the story into which it fits. Perhaps, perhaps the young man is mentally ill and he's stopped taking his medication. That might explain his behavior. Or, or what if yesterday someone of your gender, age, height, and general appearance approached that young man in the library and asked him if he knew the Latin name for wild duck, and today he's mistaken you for that person? That story would explain it. Perhaps the young man is a foreign spy waiting at a prearranged rendezvous and uttering the ill-chosen code words, the sentence that will identify him to his contact. The first story is sad, the second is somewhat comic, the third is rather dramatic, but the point is, without a story, you have no way to explain that incident. You have to understand the story. And the thing is, if you get the story wrong, your behavior will be wrong. If you think he's a spy and you ring the police, you could be thoroughly embarrassed at the end of, of the confrontation. If you think he's mentally ill and, and, and call a, a hospital team and the second part of this, you gotta get the story right. We act out of the story we understand to be true. Let, let's take it out of the, um, out of you know, imagination, and root this idea in actual events rather than simply a story around a bus stop. When, when people consider the event that took place on September the 11th, 2001, the destruction of the Twin Towers, the way they understand those tragic events and the way they interpret them will depend on a narrative structure that they believe. 
you hear some people talking about that event and they will describe it by saying, this is the result of America's abuse of imperial power in the world. The birds have come home to roost. It's our fault. You hear other people say, you know, there are many evil people out there who hate the United States because they are a good and free people and it's their fault. How you see and interpret those tragic events is determined by the story that you believe. Stories are incredibly powerful. The story that we tell ourselves has an incredibly powerful sway in creating our identities. Story is perhaps the prime mean by which the identity of individuals and also of corporate people are actually built. We actually have a name for it. We call it narrative identity. Families can be determined by the stories that they generate. The identity of the people in that family are controlled by those narrative identities, those stories that are told to them again and again and again. For example, we're working class. That's all we can expect. That's all we'll ever be. None of us have ever attended university, nor are any likely to. We are gasoline alley bread, as in breeding, not bread and butter. Such stories can be the controlling narrative for members of that family. Intentional remembering, the things that we go back to and remember with a degree of intentionality, create cultural identity. I've talked about this before, but as New Zealanders, we celebrate um, Anzac Day. It is part of our corporate identity, and every time we celebrate it, we remember the formation of, of this young nation, and that campaign dramatically affected the way that we think about ourselves. And the intentional remembering every year reinforces that story. Knowing that, God, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, God instructs the Jewish people to celebrate regular feasts, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. Every year there are regular feasts. Every week there is a regular day, Sabbath. And a key part of those events and those feasts is this idea of remembering with some degree of intentionality. And effectively, what God is saying to the people is, don't forget what story you are in. Don't forget what story you are part of. And as you read the Old, the Old Testament, one of the things that occurs again and again are the, are the multiple retellings of this, of this story. You come to the book of, Gen, of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy essentially is a rehearsal of the story so far. And in chapter 26, for example, it says this, when you come to a feast, there in the presence of God, you will recite a wandering Aramean was my father. He went down to Egypt and sojourned. He and just a handful of his brothers at first, but soon they became a great nation, mighty and many. The Egyptians abused and battered us in a cruel and savage slavery. We cried out to God, the God of our fathers. He listened to our voice. He saw our destitution, our trouble, our cruel plight. And God took us out of Egypt with a strong hand and a long arm, terrible and great, with signs and miracle wonders. And he brought us to this place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. So here I am. 
I've bought the first fruits of what I've grown on this ground you gave me, O oh God. God says to them, you do it this way. And they go back and they recite the story thus far. You see it in Joshua. As Joshua is about to give up his leadership and leave, um, he says this, Then Joshua addressed the people. This is what God, the God of Israel, says. A long time ago, your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived to the east of the river Euphrates. They worshipped other gods. I took your ancestor Abraham from the far side of the river. I led him all over the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. I gave him Isaac. Then I gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. I let Esau have the mountains of Seir as home, but Jacob and his sons ended up in Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron. I hit Egypt hard with plagues, then led you out of there. I brought your ancestors out of Egypt. You came to the sea, the Egyptians in hot pursuit with chariots and cavalry, to the very edge of the Red Sea, and on and on it goes. Joshua is retelling the story. He is saying to them, remember, you are part of the story. And as you read through the Old Testament, there's multiple retellings. Psalm 78, Psalm 105, Psalm 106 are all essentially retelling the story. The prophets regularly evoke and retell the story. Jeremiah 33, Ezekiel 20, the story is retold. Isaiah 51, Ponder the rock from which you were cut, the quarry from which you were dug. Yes, ponder Abraham your father and Sarah who bore you. Think of it. One solitary man when I called him, but once I blessed him, he multiplied. And on and on it goes. Remember the story because you are part of that story. The story you believe will impact the way you act, the way you interpret events. It's incredibly important that you believe the right story. Jesus tells those of us who are Christ followers to regularly come to the table, the Eucharist. One of the key aspects of that table is remembrance. He effectively is saying to us, remember the story. Remember what part that you are part of the story. You will act out of the story you believe. You will interpret your life, the events of your life, out of the story that you choose to believe. So he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance. Remember your story. Our culture has its stories. If you believe the 21st century Western story, then essentially you will believe that you can become whatever you want to become, that your identity is yours to construct. Now, I'd want to suggest to you, and I think most sociologists and psychologists would agree with me when I say that your identity simply cannot be created in isolation. It is a collaborative effort. Identity doesn't develop fairly, only communally. So I have some questions about the Western story. Stories are passed down from one person to another. More often they are caught as much as they are taught. It's through those stories that we come to learn who we are, where we've come from, where and to whom we belong, what we are called to, what we can aspire to. You and I live in what's been called a narrative landscape. 
We are shaped by an ecology of stories. Len Sweet says, you have a storied identity. One scholar suggested the world or the universe is made up of stories and not of atoms. So all of us are living out of and behave as a result of a story that we believe, a worldview that has significantly shaped us. Whatever story you see yourself in will have a dramatic effect on the way you live your life. Now, I can almost hear somebody sighing and say, saying, hey, hey Don, I, I know you're probably locked into the middle of the 20th century. We're in the 21st century now. This is now a postmodern world. We don't believe in big stories. We're suspicious of your big stories. People who tell big stories are simply trying to control us. We believe that people should make up their own story. And that's essentially the thrust of, of postmodern education. But, but you know what people who say those things fail to understand is to reject big stories and create your own stories is, in fact, a big story. That's the way you approach life. Reject everybody else's story. I'm going to believe that I'm in control of my story. That's your story. You can't escape stories. You can't escape worldview. You can't escape philosophy. As much as you might hate the word, all of us are philosophers. To be human is to be damned and condemned to philosophy. I'm sorry, but we're thinking creatures. And we act out of our thinking. We, we can't escape stories. They define us. They shape us. Belief in the postmodern story, the, the 21st Western story, has dramatically impacted our individualistic, materialistic Western approach to life. You see, our culture's story is one of authentic self-expression. We have been captivated and shaped by a story that tells us our personal integrity demands freedom and ongoing choice. We, we have to create our own beliefs, our own morality. We, we're not going to let anyone else tell us what's right and what's wrong. As a result, we get in our society this expressive individualism. That expressive individualism has become the predominant moral wallpaper, if you like, of our, of our culture. We've bought into a story that tells us that our goals, our dreams, our happiness... Our personal fulfillment takes precedent over everything else. And although we might be somewhat hesitant to articulate this, we would, we would nevertheless believe it. My well-being trumps everybody else's well-being. I am numero uno. And we believe that. We've been dramatically shaped by that story. You know what? It comes as an incredible shock to most of us to find if we ever do manage to find this, that large numbers of people in the world and throughout history do not share that expressive individualism. They do not live out of that story, and in fact, they are repulsed by that story. They live out of and behave out of a very, very different story. They see themselves as embedded in, intricately entwined in a much larger group, and they function with more of a collective view of reality. For them, the welfare of that larger group of which they are part is far, far more important than their individual happiness. How many of you saw the movie The Titanic? Okay. 
Well, if you haven't, there were two key characters, Jack and Rose. Jack, who was played by Leonardo DiCaprio, was a charming street kid. Uh, He was on board the Titanic because he won a boarding pass in a poker game. Rose, very different. Kate Winslet played Rose's role. Um, She was part of the upper echelon of British society. She was engaged to be married to a man from her own social stratum. Rose, as the story unfolds, has absolutely no affection for her fiancé, and there's a good reason for it. He's obnoxious and arrogant. But this marriage will guarantee an honourable future for her extended family. There's a memorable scene in which Rose's mother reminds her that this arranged marriage is in the best interest of the family because it seems that Rose's father had apparently squandered the family fortune and that this marriage was the only hope, the one last chance for her extended family in terms of preserving their present social status. Story unfolds, Rose meets Jack and the encounter ignites a flame of a romantic relationship that serves as the main storyline for the rest of the movie. And the question that rises out of the unfolding plot is who will Rose choose? Will she choose the charming Jack or the obnoxious fiancé? Well, Jack, of course. Otherwise, the movie simply would not have worked for the tens of millions of Westerners who paid to watch it. It wouldn't have worked for them. You see, as 21st century Westerners, we are quite unmoved about the potential social disaster facing Rose's extended family. And we want to cry out, go with your heart, Rose, for goodness sake. Ignore your mother's unfair and unrealistic advice. Dump the rich jerk. (laughs) Be happy. Be free, little bird. I didn't call it out. I wanted to. And I think most of you wanted to to, as well. You know, the fascinating thing is outside of a Western context, where probably most of the audience couldn't have afforded to go to it anyway, people follow a very different cultural story from the expressive individualism that grabs us out of that story. They would have been appalled beyond measure to discover that Rose was even contemplating sacrificing the honor of her family on the altar of her personal, relational, and sexual satisfaction, let alone that she might actually follow through on it. In their story, the social status of her wider family takes precedence over her personal fulfillment and happiness, and they could never countenance such an incredibly selfish, thoughtless course of action suddenly makes you think, oh my goodness, perhaps I have been influenced by this story. Usually, and and this is much more serious, without even being aware of it, we bring our expressive individualism, the story of our culture, to our reading of the scripture. Instead of the scripture being the story that we see ourselves in, the one that shapes us, modifies us, and in some places subverts the cultural stories that 
are seeking to shape us. What we do is we take our expressive individualism and we read the scriptural story in the light of our cultural story. So when we read the scripture, we see how I get saved individually and how I get to go to heaven. People who read the book of Romans will tell you it's all about how you can be justified by faith and be right with God and you personally, individually, get to go to heaven. Now, while I'm not suggesting that personal salvation isn't an issue, of course it is, but what matters is that we really see it in terms of how that also fits within a larger framework. This is, this is about me, numero uno. You know, by virtue of our expressive individualism, we have bought into a belief that we can be Christian without being part of a Christian faith community. Listen to this. We can be part of the body of Christ without being part of the body of Christ. And we don't even raise a thought about that. You have neighbors, you have friends who would say, I'm Christian. So, well, where do you, where do you, what, what part of the body of Christ? What, oh no, I, 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 I don't do that. The, the idea that that's somewhat contradictory being part of the body and not being part of the body never dawns on, on us because of the power of the expressive individualistic stories that our culture tells us. For most of history, surprise, surprise, but for most of history, had people heard of such a thing, they would have gasped at its oxymoronic stupidity. How can you be part of the body and not part of the body at the same time? How can you be part of Christ and not be part of a community. Even now, some of you are struggling with your thinking about that. You know, Martin Luther said, without the church, it is impossible to be saved. He said, what? Martin Luther wasn't saying salvation is mediated through the church. That's, that's, that's not what he was saying at all. In fact, justification by faith is the, is the great, you know, truth of the Reformation of which Martin Luther was, you know, one of the catalysts. He was saying, you can have your personal relationship with Jesus. That is important. But unless that is worked out in a corporate setting, you, you cannot be saved. Now, some of us are going, but, 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 but I don't believe that. No, of course you don't. Because you've been shaped by a story. One of the goals of this series, and I suspect that it's probably already starting to happen, is, is to, to deeply challenge some of the prevailing stories that we've believed in, the corrupting stories of our Western community. We, we come to the Bible, and in the Bible we read about this material being my promise of and guidance toward God's dream for my life. And I don't know how many sermons I have preached, let alone listened to over the years that will talk about God's dream for your life, God's call on your life, your ministry. It's, it's, all of those things are needful. I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying they are invalid, but they don't fit in a bigger framework, and it all ends up about me, numero uno. It's about me. God loves me and has a wonderful call on my life all of which, of course, is true within a larger framework that we rarely, if ever, consider. I want to suggest to you that we need to tell a bigger story with our lives than simply the story of ourselves. 
I know this is shock horror material for some of us, but as it turns out, we're not the main purpose of or the main character in the story. You are being invited into a story that is larger than simply your personal happiness. You know, you ask most people what do they want for their children and what they'll say is, I just want them to be. I really hope you want something more for your kids than I hope that they're happy. For some of us, we say, my story's wider than me. It's much wider than me. Yeah, I know it's wider than you. It's about your family and you. We've got to tell bigger stories to our children and to our grandchildren than simply your happiness, your dreams, your fulfillment. We're in a bigger story. You've got to tell your kids something more than be free, Rose. Follow your heart. Pursue happiness. It's not a big enough story to capture them. You know, the soaring rates of depression and suicide in the Western world bear mute testimony to the fact that our cultural story of expressive individualism is inadequate to say the very, very least. You know what? I think the happiness and the fulfillment that all of us strive for and long for is, is possible in terms of us being lost in a bigger story than simply ourselves. Could, it, could this be what Jesus was saying when he said, if you seek to save your life by pursuing your personal story, you will lose it. But if you are willing to lose it for my sake by being part of a larger story, then you'll find it. Could that possibly be something that Jesus would be speaking to people like you and me? The tagline for the Museum of Jewish People in Tel Aviv is, you are part of a story. Every Jewish person that walks through that door, they are trying to draw into the biggest story. Perhaps the tagline on the scriptures as we come to it should read, you are part of a story. And you're not the main actor in it. You are not the main purpose of it. The Bible is a story from start to finish. Now, we believe it's a true story. May I be so bold as to say I believe it is the true story. Now, again, having said that, I suspect that in some of our minds, our Western commitment to expressive individualism and pluralism would kick in here and say, Don, you can't say that. You, you can't say that. No one story is better than any other story. And the pluralistic, you know, 21st century thing kicks in. Everybody's story is equal. All ideas are valid. Listen, I don't mean to be obnoxious, but that is so stupid. It hardly needs pointing out. How many people have had a stupid idea in their life? <laughs> uh, three of us. You and I know all ideas are not equal. All, all stories are not equal. I mean, I understand the need for peace in our community, and I'm not talking about being obnoxious and, and, and you know, abrasive in the telling of our story, but the reality is the story you believe had better be true because if it isn't true, you'll act out of that story in ways that will just not, they'll not overlay reality with any degree of comfort. They aren't real. 
we have to, as we come to the Bible, come to it as a narrative, as a story. Not simply a ragtag bunch of unrelated and sometimes weird people and weird incidents. When, when you look at a verse or a passage or even a book without placing it in the larger framework of an overall story, you can end up missing the point terribly. And you can and often do reduce the story so that it simply reinforces your individual story rather than challenging it, shaping it, and perhaps in some cases the need to totally subvert it so that it actually can be placed correctly in a larger setting. I want to suggest to you at the outset of this series that the Bible is one narrative, it's one story, it involves the one true, God, one true God who calls out one people group so that through this one story, the one God through the one people can bless the whole world. One God, one story, one people. Now some of you might be thinking, Don, you're getting a bit hit up about things that we, we all believe this. This is hardly revolutionary. Doesn't everybody believe that? No, they don't, and I'm not sure you do either. And, and you'll see why as we walk through the series. Let, let me hint at where we might go, and then I'm going to stop, and we'll come back next week and start to explore things in more details. And it strikes me that many people believe that the story of what we call the Old Testament is about Jewish people and that with Jesus and Paul and the New Testament, we in fact have quite a radical break in the story that effectively renders all that's gone on before as interesting but redundant now. That's why, by the way, many people don't bother reading the Old Testament. doesn't matter. Jesus, we say, did away with the law. And so that stuff, mm, kind of may be interesting, but, but the story has changed. The Old Testament, it's kind of interesting in places, but it really doesn't relate to us any longer. We're in a different story. That old story is actually pretty weird in places and embarrassing in others. It's filled with things like patriarchy and slavery and, and weird food laws and animal sacrifices and other unmentionable rituals. You know, when people like Richard Dawkins say that the Bible is a weird and dangerous book, they are nearly always referencing something from the Old Testament. And we are tempted to say things like, well, that stuff is part of another story. Honestly, Jesus finished all that stuff. Jesus started a new, re a new religion. Paul, after his radical conversion on the road to Damascus, broke with the old Jewish story. Most of his ministry was saying, you don't have to do it that way anymore. That's the end of the law. It's the end of the story. We're in a new story. Now, this is, of course, superficially true in that Christianity historically has become a separate religion from Orthodox Judaism. And it's true that some of the old rituals that that part of the story spoke about, some of the sacrifices that it outlined, aren't part of the ongoing story any longer. However, I wonder if you realize that neither Jesus nor Paul had any intention of starting another religion as such. 
Neither Jesus nor Paul used language like Old Testament, New Testament. They talked about the scriptures. You said, hang on a minute, Don. Jesus spoke about a new covenant that would be inaugurated through the shedding of his blood. True, he didn't. Oh, sorry, true, he did. <laughs> true, he did. But, but what he was saying was rooted in and prophesied by the earlier part of the story. He's referencing back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel who said there would be a time in the story when God would so pour out his spirits that our hearts of stone would be made hearts of flesh. And, and Jesus is referencing that part of the story. He's not breaking with the story. Jesus didn't see this as a break from the story. He was the fulfillment of the story thus far. Jesus came as a continuation of the story that had been told thus far. He comes as the fulfillment of the faith, uh, faith of Israel. He's the promised Messiah of the story. He's the seed of Abraham that would bless the world. He's the promised son of David. All of this is part of the story that leads to him. He's the climax of the story so far, and he becomes the pivot on which the rest of the story swings and hinges. But he isn't a break in the story. He's not a stop in the story. There isn't suddenly now a different direction in the story. Paul remained, even after his dramatic conversion, an entirely Jewish thinker who saw his life and ministry as a continuation of the one story of God and the one people of God. And I want to tell you, that's where life is going to get interesting as we unfold the story. Because you and I have been dramatically shaped by a doctrine or a theology that we call dispensationalism, which tells us there are two peoples. There is an earthly people, the Jewish people. There is a heavenly people, the church. And all of their eschatology, all of their thinking about the end times is, is based on this idea that God has dealt with the people up to this point. They weren't responsive. He's now got another people. He will deal with them up to this point. When that's finished, he will pick up the threads. The prophetic clock will start ticking and he will carry on the story. And it'll all be about Israel in the end of the age. The rebuilding of a temple, the reinstitution of sacrifices, Gog and Magog, and you've heard it all before. And, and some of you are saying, you don't believe that? No, I don't. The Bible talks about one story and one people. This has the potential to upset some apple carts. But so be it. Because the Bible should shape us. We should be in a place where we are, how can I put this? This isn't good English, it's good theology. Ongoingly shapeable. When we think we've got it all sussed, God help you. Okay, because none of us have got it sussed. I'm going to talk about some things in this series that even 15 years ago, 10 years ago, I would... I would never have talked about. In fact, I can take you back to where I did the Gog, the Magog, the, that stuff. But as I've read, as I've engaged with the scriptures, probably for about the last five years, I have been deeply challenged about some of the things that I believe. And I've come to realize that I'm in a story and it isn't all about me. 
It's a larger story than my life. It's a larger story than our lives. We have to find our place in that story because the way we face everything that comes our way will come out of what I believe about my story. If I believe in the expressive individualism of the 21st century Western cultural story, then why should I put off anything that brings me happiness? Why shouldn't I behave like everybody else behaves sexually? Or with regard alcohol or, or drugs? Or it, it, It's all about me. And, and of course, God loves me. And I'm so the apple of his eye that whatever I do, he'll forgive me. You can see how inadequate the story becomes. We have to see ourselves in a bigger story with bigger things at stake than simply my personal happiness. Otherwise, I, I, you know, I fear for us all. That's dramatic, eh? Should stop before they start get violins out and people start weeping in their seats. So, well, Don, you know, I'm not quite sure where you're going with all this, how it matters. I, I really hope that in the days ahead we'll be able to unpack this a little more. Um, I have to tell you, the last five years for me have been quite revolutionary in the way that I've been thinking about some things. And uh, the, the time has come, perhaps, to, to share that with you. I, at the end of the day... You, you, you've been around Gateway long enough to know at the end of the day, I'm not mandating anything. This isn't some kind of papal bull or decree that says, you have believed this, you will no longer, you will now believe this. Because, you know, his holiness has spoken. <laughs> um, you, you know that we don't function like that. You know that we'll outline and lay out the scriptures and we expect you to be like the people of Berea in Paul's time who examined the scriptures daily to see if things were so. And you need to grapple with the scriptures. You need to allow the Lord to, 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 to maybe take some cherished ideas and just put some pressure on them and say, really? What about this? Really? How do you explain that? And, and, and we'll grapple together as we go forward. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.